Church, go and grab your Bibles and uh, open up with me to the 27th Psalm. We're going to be in Psalm 27 together. And let's go to the Lord together for a word of prayer again before we uh, turn our attention to Scripture. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for um, all the truth that we've been reminded of in this service. And Lord, thank you for the the folks in our church body who you've used as an encouragement already this morning to point our eyes to Christ and to point our eyes to who our dwelling place is and where our faith is secure and where our firm foundation is. And Lord, I pray as we get ready to, to read this psalm and think through this psalm, God, I pray that you would just lay that foundation even more solidly, Lord, as, as we have so many things and so many folks in our church family who are facing trials and uh, facing fears. Uh, God, I pray that through David's help in Psalm 27, the Lord, that you would give us the path through and that you'd point our eyes to our dwelling place. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, if you've been here over the last month or so, you know that we're working our way right now through a portion of the Psalms. Our, our pattern as a church has been in between our bigger book studies we have over the last uh, two years almost now, We've turned our attention to Psalms and we've worked through seven or eight Psalms at a time. And so a few weeks ago, we started with Psalm 24 and the plan is we're going to keep going all the way through Psalm 32 and we're on Psalm 27 today. Um, I would argue that, that one of the greatest preachers, at least of the last 200 years, was Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon was without doubt in the last half of the 19th century, he was the best known preacher in all of England. He's still today often referred to as the Prince of Preachers. And Spurgeon preached before what in that time was just enormous crowds of people. Thousands of people would go to his church, the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, to hear Spurgeon preach. And Charles Spurgeon loved to preach from the Psalms. In fact, he preached over 400 sermons out of the Psalms during his ministry. And probably Spurgeon's magnum opus, his most important work, was a commentary that he wrote through the Psalms. It's called The Treasury of David. If you've never worked through it in your quiet times, you can pull it up online. It's largely available online for free. But in that commentary, Spurgeon covers every single verse of all 150 Psalms. And it took him 20 years to write that commentary over the Psalms. And he wrote it because he personally was so helped by studying the Psalms. He loved the Psalms. And I want to read Spurgeon's words. This is how Spurgeon described the Psalms. He wrote, The book of Psalms has been a royal banquet to me. And in feasting upon its contents, I have seemed to eat angels' food. It is the paradise of devotion, the holy land of poetry, the heart of Scripture, the map of experience and the tongue of saints. It is the spokesman of feelings which else had found no utterance. Does it not say just what we wished to say? Are not its prayers and praises exactly such as our hearts delight in? No man needs better company than the Psalms. Now first, I wish I could write that way. No man needs better company than the Psalms. But secondly, in, in what he says so true here where Spurgeon says, that on our own, we can struggle to vocalize our emotions. We can struggle knowing how to pray during some of our emotional travails. 
But the Psalms help us put words to our prayers like nothing else does. The Psalms really are medicine for our souls. And if you haven't picked it up already through the songs that we sang, the Psalm that we're going to be looking at today is a Psalm that helps us in the face of fear. And if there's something that David, who wrote this Psalm, if there's something that David knew about in his life, it was dealing with fear. If you ever take the time and just want to do a devotion where you read through David's life, you can read it in First and Second Samuel, and one of the things that will stand out to you is that very little of David's life was actually lived during times of ease. You could really argue that maybe the only period of peace, really prolonged peace that David had in his life, was those early years when he was working in the fields as a shepherd. Because it's like as soon as David gets anointed as king, his life turns upside down. He spends years of his life with the king of Israel, King Saul, trying to track him down with the full power of the Israeli army, trying to track David down to kill him. And David's having to run. Once David does ascend to the throne, he's constantly fighting battles. David was very much a wartime king. It is one battle after after the next. David's enemies were relentless. He was always fighting And then, of course, you know how David's home life began to unravel. There were conflicts among David's children. David had one of his own sons who tried to overthrow him, one of his own sons who tried to execute him. David buried several of his kids. David's life was hard. And what that means is, as we read through some of David's psalms in Scripture, there aren't very many of these psalms that were written from a place of tranquility. Most of David's psalms were written from a place of trouble. They were written from a place of hardship, and that's Psalm 27. We don't know exactly where on the timeline of David's life this psalm was written, but we can tell from what David says here that he wrote this at a time when his enemies had surrounded him, pressures were closing in, and when there are pressures and when there are enemies, what tends to go along with that? Fear. And it seems that fear has begun to worm its way into David's heart. And we all know what that feels like, right? We know what it feels like when you're facing some trial or some uncertainty and fear begins to creep in. And it's almost like you have a hard time catching your breath when fear takes hold. I was listening to a talk from Tommy Nelson, and he said that in his years of ministry, he had found that there are two things that tend to generate fear in people's lives. And I think it sums it up well. He says people tend most to fear inevitabilities and possibilities. And that's a good summary. People tend to fear inevitabilities, meaning the inevitabilities of life. One of those inevitabilities of life is death. We are all going to die. And he made the point that some people get consumed with that. They spend all of their time overwhelmed with how they can outmaneuver and outrun death because they're petrified of it. So we fear inevitabilities. And then secondly, we fear possibilities. And he means by that that we fear all the things that may happen. Do you find yourself doing this in your life where you start asking yourself all of these potential questions? Man, what if what if that spot is cancer? What if my daughter doesn't turn around? What if the economy doesn't pick up? What if business doesn't pick up? What if I do lose my job? What if we do go to war? What if the economy does tank? And the next thing you know, you worry yourself to death asking those sorts of questions, inevitabilities and possibilities. And on top of that, there are all sorts of other things. 
Most of us have real enemies, a spiritual enemy, and sometimes we have physical enemies who want to see us ruined. On top of that, we have our own foibles, we have our own temptations and our own failures in the past, and we wonder, can I ever get past these things in my life? So many potential sources of fear. And Psalm 27 is written to help us navigate through those fears with faith. And one more thing before we read. One of the things that will stand out to you as we read this psalm is there are two clear parts to it. So the first six verses of it, David largely talks about God. It's filled with hope and confidence. But then when you come to verse 7, the tone of the psalm all of a sudden changes. Once you get to verse 7, David stops talking about God and he starts directly talking to God. In fact, not just talking to God. Once you come to verse 7, David really begins to plead with God. And the the tone of those two halves, verses 1 through 6 and verses 7 through 14, is so drastically different that there have been commentators who have argued that this must have originally been two psalms. 1 through 6 must have been its own psalm and 7 through 14, its own psalm. And somehow over the years, these two different psalms just got mashed together. But there's no evidence for that. What I think is happening is in this psalm, David is giving us a vivid picture of of the ups and downs we go through in life. Not just in life, but sometimes in the same day. Where there are days where I feel like my faith is unshakable, but by the end of the day, it feels like my faith is hanging on by a thread, right? We have days where we all experience the yo-yo, the the yo-yo of emotions and the yo-yo of our faith feeling strong or weak. In Psalm 27 highlights that. It shows us the ups and downs and what faith looks like in the face of those fears. Okay, so we're going to read this psalm in its entirety. So if your Bible's open, we're in Psalm 27, beginning in verse 1, and we'll go down through verse 14. It's a it's a psalm of confidence in the face of fear. And David, under the inspiration of God's Spirit, writes, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may arise against me, in this I'll be confident. One thing I've desired of the Lord, and that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. For in the time of trouble, He shall hide me in His pavilion. In the secret place of His tabernacle, He shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in His tabernacle. I will sing Yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Notice the change in tone in verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. 
Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have arisen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. All right, we're going to look at this psalm under four headings this morning. Here's the first one. Number one, I want to see David's confidence. So David starts this psalm with a wonderful declaration of faith in verse 1. Right? Look at verse 1 again. David says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? There are three titles that David gives to God there. Did you notice them? First, David says that God is our light. Now, you see that light synonym used lots in the Bible. Light is used in the Bible really to represent everything that is good. Light represents holiness. Light represents truth. Light represents righteousness. And what is it that light does? Well, light dispels darkness. Think of how this relates to fear, or or maybe think of it practically. Um, Just imagine for a minute that tomorrow is trash day at your house. So let's say that every Monday morning, the garbage truck comes by at 5.30 in the morning, and it picks up your trash can. And so you usually push your trash can out Sunday afternoons to get ready for Monday morning. But let's say you're lying in bed tonight, you haven't quite dozed off to sleep, it's 11.30, and you remember that tomorrow's trash day and you forgot to push your trash can out. Have you ever done that in your trash day? We, we have. So it's 11.30 at night, you haven't pushed your trash can out and it's full. So you jump out of bed, you pull on some clothes, you go out and you get your trash can, it's pitch black, and you're rolling your trash can out of out your driveway to put it at the curb. You're still kind of half asleep and all of a sudden you hear a loud rustling in the bushes right next to your driveway. And your heart jumps, right? That fear or fight or flee, whatever it is, instinct kicks in. And you're getting ready. You think you're about to be in for the fight of your life. You drop the trash can and you turn toward the enemy. You have just a second to pull out your flashlight and or your phone and to pull up the flashlight and you turn your flashlight on and you realize it's it's just the neighbor's cat in the bushes. What did that light do? Well, that light showed what was really there. The, the light, in other words, exposes that fear for what it really is. Isn't this what you even experience with kids? If you have a a child or a grandchild who's afraid of the dark, what do they want when you tuck them in at night? They want you to leave a light. At least leave a night light on. Why? Because as long as there's a light, it it keeps those imaginary monsters at bay. It's like David is saying here, this is who God is to us. God is our light. In His presence, the darkness is driven away. In His presence fears are kept at bay. All of those imaginary monsters that kind of creep into our minds and take over are driven back in the light of God's presence. And then David says that not only is he our light, he is our salvation. And in its broadest sense, salvation just means deliverance from evil. We have evils around us and we have evils within us. We're in a world where there are enemies and there's all sorts of evils that threaten us. 
And then even as believers, we have evil that resides in our own hearts. And David's point is God is the only one who can deliver us from those evils. God is the only one who can deliver us from the evils out there. And God is the only one who can deliver us from the evils in here. It's why David said back in Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. We fear no evil because God is our salvation. And then what's the third title? He is my light and my salvation. The way the New King James words it is he is the strength of my life. Your translation might word it, he is my stronghold or he is my strong defense. And the stronghold was the place in the city that everybody would run to if they were under attack. The stronghold is where you were safe. The stronghold is where you were protected. The stronghold is where you would go to get away from the enemy. God is my light, my stronghold, my salvation. And and don't miss all of the my's. One of the ways you can tell in Hebrew what is being emphasized is there's repetition. And notice the repetition of that pronoun. He is my light. He is my salvation. He is my strong defense. You know, you can believe that God is all of these things and not actually be helped by it at all yourself. And what I mean by that is, it's great to have a stronghold, but if I don't have access to the stronghold, it's not great for me. It's great to have light, but if I'm in the woods and I don't actually have a flashlight, light's not great for me. But what David is reminding us of here is that by grace, through faith, Everything that God is, He is for me. That's so important. By grace, through faith, everything that God is, He is for me. He's not just light, He's my light. I was blind. I was stumbling in darkness, but I thought I saw just fine when God opened my eyes and He became my light. He's not just light, He's light for me. I was on the broad road headed to destruction, whistling like everything was just fine, and God plucked me off of that, and he became my salvation. I thought I was fine on my own. I could get by on my strength and my wit and my intellect. And God rescued me from that, and he became my stronghold. Everything that God is, by grace, through faith, he is for me. David says he's my light, my salvation, my strong defender. And because of that, David asked these rhetorical questions in verse 1 that all call for a negative answer. So if Yahweh is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? And what's the implied answer there? No one. If Yahweh is the strength of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? Answer, absolutely no one. There's there's a sort of sarcastic, defiant tone to what David is saying here. It's like David is saying, what am I going to be afraid of? God is on my side. He is, he is stronger than any enemy. He is bigger than any obstacle. So just to cut it down to its root. So do you see what the answer to fear is? The answer to fear is faith. Seeing God for who He is and trusting Him is what drives out fear. And so the question is, how do we move toward that when In your Christian walk, when fear begins to sink its tentacles into your heart, how do you move from fear toward faith? We move from fear toward faith by doing what David does here. What does David do? He prays, 
But there's a a specific flavor to this prayer. What is he doing in the opening verses? David, in his prayer, is recounting who God is. David, in this prayer, is... By saying who God is, there's two things happening. By recounting who God is, God is being magnified. David is talking about the greatness of God. But what else is happening as David recounts the greatness of God? He's not only saying this to God... This is also being said for the benefit of David's own heart, right? We've talked before about the fact that the most consistent, prevalent voice in your life is not the voice of your best friend or your wife or your husband. The most persistent voice in your life is your own. You talk to yourself more than anybody else talks to you. Every single person in here, you have a constant monologue that is running in your mind. Hopefully you don't say it out loud. But you have a constant, it's like you're the narrator of your own life. Where you're evaluating, constantly in your mind, you're evaluating everything. And you're making uh, judgments on how this situation is going. And you're thinking in your mind about that conversation that happened earlier. And how you would word it differently. And you're looking ahead to what's going to happen tomorrow and how you're going to handle. You're constantly talking to yourself. And what the Psalms remind us of is how important it is that we take control of that internal monologue. Instead of letting your thoughts stay on your troubles and your woes, turn your thoughts to God. Pray. Remind yourself of who God is. That's how David is moving from fear toward faith. And so he says then in verse 2, When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fail. David is describing his enemies here like they're a pack of wild animals. And David says, my enemies, like a pack of wolves, they had surrounded me. But what happened? David says, they stumbled and fell. And you'll notice that's past tense. And so what David is doing in verse 2 is David is looking back on how God had delivered him in the past. He's looking back and he's remembering he had been surrounded just like this before. And what happened when he was surrounded before? God had made his enemies stumble and fall. You know, sometimes the best thing we can do when we're struggling with fear about all the uncertainties of the future, sometimes the best thing we can do in those situations is just to begin to rehearse God's faithfulness in the past. Right? Can't you look back in your mind and remember all the times that God's been faithful to you before. Think back on all the times that God has provided for you. Think back on all the times that God has preserved you. Think back on all the times that God has protected you. Well, that's what David is recounting here. This was not David's first rodeo. He had been in situations just like this before. And every time God had been faithful. So why would he fret now? And so in light of God's past faithfulness, he says in verse 3, Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. So do you see how he looks back? The last time enemies came, they stumbled and fell. And then in verse 3, David looks forward and says, So now even though an army may encamp against me, this is extreme language, right? I mean, really, David, an army on one side and you on the other side, and you're still not going to be afraid? And David goes, no, I'm not going to be afraid because God has always been faithful. When my boys were little, I mean, two, three, four years old, they used to love for me to throw them 
in the air. And when I would throw them in the air, I didn't just throw them a little bit. I would put everything I had and I would throw them as high as I, I don't mean the little easy stuff. I would throw them as high as I could possibly get them to go and they loved it. I would throw them and they would soar and they would just belly laugh the whole time and they would ask for me to do it again and again and again until my arms couldn't even be raised up anymore. They loved it. But why did they laugh when I did that? Because the fact of the matter is I would throw them as high as I could throw them and wait four or five seconds to catch them. But I would throw them up as high as I could and they would laugh. And the fact is, if I for some reason didn't catch them, They weren't going to walk away. They were going to limp away. If I didn't catch them, they were so high, it was going to hurt them when they fell. So how could they laugh? Because they they never even thought about hitting the ground. Because I had thrown them up hundreds of times, and I had caught them every single time. And they trusted me. Christian, isn't that our testimony? So as we're looking to whatever we're facing right now, or as we're looking over the next weeks or months or years at whatever is tempting you to collapse in fear, isn't our testimony just like John Newton's where we can look back and go, His grace has brought me safe thus far. And then I can look the other direction and go, And His grace will lead me home. Well, that's what David is doing in verses 2 and 3. There's a declaration of faith. Here's the second thing. Number two, I want to see David's consuming desire. Look at verse four. David's consuming desire. David says, one thing I've desired of the Lord, and that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. This is the key verse of this whole psalm. This is the heart of the psalm. So in the middle of David's troubles, what is it that David most longed for? David wanted to be in the house of God, with the people of God, beholding the beauty of God. Because nothing lifted David out of the quagmire of fear and worry like worship. So the one thing David asked isn't for his enemies to be annihilated. Because if those enemies were annihilated, other enemies would pop up in their place. The one thing David asked is not, is not for his army to be bigger or for his weapons to be better. No, the one thing David asked isn't anything from God. The one thing David desires is God himself. And we should just pause and ask a question here. So what would this prayer look like for you? What if you started your prayer right now the same way David did in verse 4? What if you said, Lord, just one desire I have, just one thing I ask of you, what would the rest of that prayer look like? Lord, there's just one thing I want, or just give me my health back. Lord, there's just one thing I want, just put my marriage back together. There's just one thing I want, Lord, keep my business from falling apart. There's just one thing I want. Bring that friend back. What would that one thing be? Because whatever that one thing would be for you is your treasure. Whatever that one thing would be for you, that's what you think you need to be satisfied. That's what you think you need to make your life peaceful and contented and fulfilling. Well, here's another way to say it. 
Whatever that one thing is for you, if your one thing is anything other than David's one thing, then your one thing is an idol. Because what David is reminding us of here is that the one thing that you and I desperately need is not anything from God. The one thing that we most need is God himself. And so David says, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. The, the house of the Lord, of course, is a name for the tabernacle, which would later become the temple. That, that's where God had promised that he would meet with his people in a unique way. They would go to the temple together to worship God, and God promised they would know his presence there in a special way. That's what David's talking about. Now, pause. Of course, David understood that God's omnipresent. God's everywhere, so we can worship God anywhere and everywhere. We can commune with God anywhere and everywhere. But David also recognized that God had promised to be with his people in a unique way when they came together. So, so the temple is where God's covenant people would come together to offer sacrifices and to sing their songs and to lift their prayers and David is saying, Lord, I, I want to be with your people in your presence. Because it's in God's presence that fear is banished. It's in God's presence that sorrows are eased. It's in God's presence that all of my, all of my priorities get recalibrated. So do you see the point of verse 4, church? There is no better remedy for our doubts and fears and struggles and discouragements than worship. Because worship gets our eyes off of all of the challenges and discouragements, and worship puts our eyes on God. And in light of God, everything else shrinks down to its proper size. In light of God, we begin to see life for what it really is. And what was it that David wanted to do in the house of the Lord? David said, I want to behold the beauty of the Lord. Some of your translations will word it. I want to gaze at the beauty of the Lord. David doesn't just want to glance at the Lord. David wants to gaze at the Lord. Now we understand, as, as the catechism says, God is a spirit. He has no body as we do. God doesn't have a physical form that we can look at with our eyes. So what does David mean? How, how exactly, if God doesn't have a physical form, how do we gaze at God? How do we behold God? Well, David is talking here about meditating on the Lord. David is saying here that he wants to behold God with admiration and affection. He wants to contemplate God's ways and God's nature and God's character and God's works and God's word and God's power and God's promises. David wants to behold the Lord. And, and David is saying here that he also wants to behold the Lord with the Lord's people. Make sure you get the connection to this. I can behold the Lord's beauty on my own, right? I read the Bible devotionally myself. And I sing songs individually, personally, privately, pri very privately. And I, and I pray privately to the Lord myself. And in all of those ways... I personally and privately behold the beauty of the Lord. But what David is driving at here is that there's a unique way that we behold the beauty of the Lord when we lift our eyes collectively as God's people. 
Okay, so David wants to be in the house of the Lord, with the people of the Lord, beholding the beauty of the Lord. Listen to the way David Mathis described it. This is a long quote, but he says it really well. He says, You were made for more than private devotions. As nice as it can be to tuck ourselves away in some nook and cranny all by our lonesome and read the scriptures we want to read, pray the prayers we prefer, play the songs we like, memorize the verses we pick, and fast from food from food when it's convenient. As important as it is to pursue a regular rhythm of private worship in these personal disciplines, this is not the pinnacle of our Christian lives. We were made to worship Jesus together among the multitude, with the great horde, swallowed up in the magnificent mass of the redeemed. God didn't fashion us to enjoy Him finally as solitary individuals, but as happy members of a countlessly large family. When the fog of everyday life clears and we catch a glimpse of heaven's bliss, we don't find ourselves sequestered at a study desk or hidden alone in a prayer closet in paradise or even standing alone before the great Grand Canyon or mountain peak of God's majesty, but joyfully lost in the worshiping throng of Christ's people from every tongue and tribe and nation, we were made for corporate worship. And that's what David is longing for. And notice what it is we come together to behold. David says we come together to behold the beauty of the Lord. I wonder, do you even think of God in those terms? That God is beautiful. Every virtue in God, every virtue is put on display. So we come to behold the apex of wisdom. We come to God to behold the height of goodness and the height of mercy and the height of righteousness and the apex of holiness. All of that comes crashing together. As we behold God. We come to look at the one who is more beautiful than any ugly thing you will ever face in your life. We come to behold the beauty of God. And just as a side note, church, this is why in addition to having our personal scripture reading plans that we encourage you to follow as a church, we also regularly encourage you to read books as a church. And the books that we often read are books about God. We read Knowing God, and we read The Holiness of God. And right now we're reading a book, uh, Delighting in the Trinity, to help us understand the triune nature of God. We do everything we can because we want to behold the beauty of the Lord. And that's what David is saying that he longed for. David longed to be with God's people, beholding God's beauty. Let me say one other thing about this. You also realize that we get to behold the beauty of the Lord with a power and a clarity that David could have never dreamed of. Because the way John says it in his gospel is that in Jesus, the Word has now become flesh. And in Jesus, we now behold, John 1.14, we behold the glory of God full of grace and truth. So in Jesus, our beautiful God took on flesh and pitched his tent right here with us. So that in a unique way, we can behold the beauty of God. So we behold the beauty of God's mercy. 
As we see Jesus' incarnation, God, our mighty God, takes on flesh to walk on this miserable earth. And we behold the beauty of God's compassion as we read about all the miracles, as he comes to suffering people and opens eyes and gives the, the lame their strength back and gives food to the hungry. And we behold the beauty of God's love and God's justice as we look at the cross and as we see Jesus bearing the sins and enduring the penalty for all those who would ever believe. And we see the beauty of God's power as we see his resurrection from the dead. My point is that we behold the beauty of God in a special way as we behold the Lamb of God who takes away, John says, who takes away the sins of the world. And everything for David, David is confident everything in his life will be set in its proper order. All of his fears and all of his struggles will be set in their proper place if he can just behold the beauty of God. So we gather together collectively to raise our eyes to behold the beauty of God. And here's what that led to for David. Look at verses 5 and 6. David says, For in the time of trouble, notice the confidence that's building from that, For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. You see what David's confidence is renewed in as he beholds the beauty of God. David says, he will, he will hide me in his pavilion. The pavilion, that was the king's tent. When the king would go out to battle with the army, the king's tent, his pavilion, would be set up in the middle of the camp. So the king's pavilion was the safest place in camp. For an enemy to get to the king, they would have to come through layer after layer after layer of fully armed soldier. And David is saying, God tucks his people away in his pavilion. And he sets our feet high upon a rock, way out of the reach of all of our enemies. And because of this, what does David now say he's going to do? David says, because of this, I will sing. Don't, don't just breeze past that. You know the Psalms were written as prayers and songs. But one of the striking things is how often the Psalms command us to sing. The Psalms weren't just written as songs. The Psalms call us and command us as the people of God to sing. You could say it this way. God's people sing. It's just what we do. I mean, think of it. How in the world could hearts that have beheld the beauty of God, not burst to sing to God. And so David says, I sing, yes, I will sing praises to this God. That leads to the third point. This is where the transition happens. Number three, I want to see David's cry. Verses 7 through 10, David says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy upon me and answer me. When you said, seek my face... My heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Do you see the change that happens? But this is how life goes, right? One second I feel confident, the next second I feel overwhelmed. There's some 
There are some days where I wake up in the morning singing verses 1 through 6, and I go to bed at night singing verses 7 through 14. We've all been on the roller coaster of emotion and faith that comes in life. But this is what gazing at the beauty of the Lord does for us in those moments. Rather than sinking down and giving all of my attention to my miseries, David here has the strength to cry out to God for mercy. Because David has just reminded himself that God is remarkably merciful. And David says, Lord, you have called me to seek your face. So your face I seek. It's like David is saying, God, you extended the invitation. I'm taking you up on it. Lord, you invited me to come. I'm coming. You invited me to pray. I'm praying. You invited me to ask. I'm asking. You invited me to knock. I'm knocking. You invited me to cast my cares. I'm casting them. So David is taking God up. And and we have the same invitation as David, right? So when trials hit and you've lost your way, Seek God's face like David. More than you need answers, you need God. So David says, Lord, you have been my help in the past, so don't leave me now. David is saying, Lord, don't turn your face away from me and don't turn me away from you. There's a, there's a sort of desperation in those verses, verses 7 through 10. Right? It makes you think of what the psalmist will say later as a deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. And did you get verse 10? I would guess that everyone in here, everyone in here probably has certain relationships, certain people who you think would be with you through thick and thin, right? And usually the the apex of that, we think, is, is the relationship between parents and a child. Parents, good parents, are committed to their children. Good parents make sacrifices for their children. Everybody else may give up, but good parents just can't let go, right? And so David says in verse 10, Your father and your mother will forsake you, but God will not. I mean, just think about that from the perspective of a parent. Parents, what what would it take for you to abandon your children? What, What would the breaking point be where you would finally wash your hands and say, That's enough, I'm done. Well, God is saying here that you will, because you're probably thinking in your mind, that point would not come. I will not forsake my kids. But David is saying here, God is saying here, that you will forsake your children before God forsakes his children. Because the fact of the matter is, at some point, parent, best parent in here, at some point you will forsake your children. You know when? You're going to die. There's going to come a point when you will, your kids are going to need help. You will not be there to help your child anymore because you're going to leave this earth and die. And most commentators think that's what's on David's mind in verse 10. Because if you read through David's life, it seems that David had a good relationship with his mom and dad, but David has now reached a point where his mom and dad are both gone. But David knew that he had a father who cared for him more tenaciously than the best parent ever could. So let me say two things about that. There are undoubtedly folks here, and the ideal relationship I just described of parents is not something you're familiar with. You had parents in your life who abandoned you or even worse, abused you or walked out on you. Or maybe you're in the position that David was. Maybe you're separated from parents now by death. 
But here David's saying here that through faith, you have a father who will care for you and be faithful to you even better than the best parent could ever dream of. So David is casting himself here on God's faithfulness. And then he says in verses 11 and 12, Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have arisen against me, and such as breathe out violence. There's his request. He asked the Lord to teach him and to guide him. So he's asking for wisdom, and he's trusting in God's providence. He asked God to put him on a smooth path, and to protect him from his enemies. And then he says this in verse 13. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Did you see how even as you go through the second half of this prayer, David's faith seems to be building? As hard as his circumstances were, this is what David held on to. As hard as his circumstances were, David knew that he would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. The land of the living means on this side of the grave, in this life. I mean, of course, David knew on the other side of the grave he would experience the goodness of God, but it's more than that. David was sure that because he had a father who was so loyal and committed, he knew he would experience the goodness of God on this side of the grave. Even though his circumstances were hard, even though fear was closing in on his heart, He knew that God's goodness was still there. Listen, Christian, whatever you're facing, God has not withdrawn His goodness. You may not see it in the moment, but His goodness is still there. Keep seeking the Lord, and you will again know the goodness of God. So David ends, verse 14. He says in verse 14, Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Notice what's happening in verse 14. Most of this psalm has been David speaking directly to God or about God. But you come to verse 14, and it's like David, in the middle of the song, he stops singing And he looks at us. And David has something to say to us. See, David's not only certain that he will again experience the goodness of God, he's just as convinced that we will also experience the goodness of God. Because David knows that God is good to all of his people. And so David's key command in verse 14 is, listen, wait on the Lord. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. Wait on the Lord. And and, When you get waiting in the Bible, it's not like waiting in the room at the dentist office. It's not like waiting in line at the DMV. Waiting on God in the Bible is, it's like waiting with eagerness. It's like David is saying, sit up on the edge of your seat and wait for God. His goodness is coming. God hasn't forgotten you. Okay, then why why the delay? If God hasn't forgotten, if he's more loyal than the best parent in the world, why am I going through this season where there's fog and I don't see the goodness of God? Why the delay? Well, God's purpose in the delay 
is that you and I would come to the same point that David came to in verse 4. The point in the delay is that we would come to the point where we realize more than we need anything else, we need God. What I need is to come to a point where I'm saying like David, Lord, this one thing I desire. May I dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord. The main thing I need isn't for my fears to go away. The main thing I need isn't for my troubles to end. The main thing I need is to get to God. Because that's where our fears melt away. And the Lord's Supper reminds us of how we approach God. I don't approach God because I am the example of resolute faith. I don't approach God because I've lived such a good week. I approach God because I have a Savior who made a way for me to approach God. I approach God because I have a Savior who took my sins and my sorrows and made them His very own. I can approach God because I have a Savior who hung on the cross under the condemnation that should rightly fall on me for my sin, and now through faith in Him and what He's done, God welcomes me in. And so the Lord's Supper is a reminder that we can now come to God. We can behold the beauty of God because we have a Savior who took all of our ugliness on Himself at the cross.